0: Chapter 7 of Black Ivory by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 Enemies are changed into friends. Our travelers penetrate into the interior of the land. To possess the power of looking perfectly calm and unconcerned when you are in reality considerably agitated and rather anxious is extremely useful in any circumstances but especially so when one happens to be in the midst of grinning gesticulating naked savages our hero harold seadrift possessed that power in an eminent degree and his first mate disco lillehammer was not a whit behind him although both had started abruptly to their legs at the first alarm and drawn their respected revolvers they no sooner found themselves surrounded by overwhelming numbers Then they lowered their weapons and, turning back to back, faced the intruders with calm countenances. "'Sit down, men, every one of you except Antonio,' said Harold in a quiet but clear and decided voice. His men, who, having left their guns in the canoe, were utterly helpless, quietly obeyed. "'Who are you and what do you want?' demanded Antonio by Harold's order to this a tall negro who was obviously the leader of the band replied in the native tongue it matters little who we are you are in our power not quite said harold slightly removing his revolver tell him that he may overcome us but before he does so my friend and i carry the lives of twelve of his men in our pistols the negro chief who quite understood the powers of a revolver replied tell your master that before he could fire two shots He and his friend would have each twelve bullets in his body, but I have not time to palaver here. Who are you and where are you going? "'We are Englishmen, traveling to see the country,' replied Harold. The chief looked doubtfully at him and seemed to waver, then suddenly making up his mind he frowned and said sternly, "'No, that is a lie. You are Portuguese scoundrels. You shall all die. You have robbed us of our liberty, our wives, our children,' our homes you have chained and tortured and flogged us he gnashed his teeth at this point and his followers grew excited now we have got free and you are caught we will let you know what it is to be slaves as the negro chief stirred up his wrath by thus recounting his wrongs and advanced a step harold begged disco in a low urgent voice not to raise his pistol Then, looking the savage full in the face, without showing a trace of anxiety, he said, "'You are wrong. We are indeed Englishmen, and you know that the English detest slavery and would, if they could, put a stop to it altogether.' "'Yes, I know that,' said the chief. "'We have seen one Englishman here, and he has made us to know that not all men with white faces are devils, like the Portuguese and Arabs. But how am I to know you are English?' Again the chief wavered a little, as if half inclined to believe Harold's statement. "'Here is proof for you,' said Harold, pointing to Chimbolo, who, being scarcely able to move, had remained all this time beside the fire, leaning on his elbow and listening intently to the conversation. "'See,' he continued, "'that is a slave. Look at him!' As he said this, Harold stepped quickly forward and removed the blanket with which he had covered his lacerated back after dressing it a howl of execration burst from the band of negroes who pointed their spears and guns at the travelers' breasts and would have made a speedy end of the whole party if antonio had not exclaimed speak Chimbolo, speak the slave looked up with animation and told the rebels how his portuguese owner had ordered him to be flogged to death but changed his mind and doomed him to be drowned how that in the nick of time these white men had rescued him and had afterwards treated him with the greatest kindness. Chimbolo did not say much, but what he did say was uttered with emphasis and feeling. This was enough. Those who would have been enemies were suddenly converted into warm friends, and the desperados who would have torn their former masters or any of their race limb from limb if they could have got hold of them left our adventurers undisturbed in their bivouac after wishing them a prosperous journey." it was nevertheless deemed advisable to keep watch during the night. This was done faithfully and conscientiously as far as it went. Harold took the first hour by way of example. He sat over the fire, alternately gazing into its embers while he meditated of home, and round upon the dark forest while he thought of Africa. True to time, he called Disco, who, equally true to his sense of duty, turned out at once with a deep, "'Aye, aye, sir,' The self-styled first mate placed his back against a tree, and endeavoring to believe it to be a capstan or binnacle or any other object appertaining to the sea, stared at the ghostly stems of the forest trees until they began to dance hornpipes for his special gratification, or glowered at the shadows until they became instinct with life, and all but induced him to rouse the camp twenty times in the course of his hour's vigil. Time to time also, like his predecessor, disco roused antonio and immediately turned in the vivacious chef de cuisine started up at once took up his position at the foot of the tree which disco had just left leaned his back against it and straight away went to sleep in which condition he remained till morning leaving the camp in unprotected felicity and blissful ignorance fortunately for all parties disco awoke in time to catch him napping and resolved to punish him he crept stealthily round to the back of the tree against which the faithless man leaned, and reached gently round until his mouth was close to Antonio's cheek. Then, collecting all the air that his vast lungs were capable of containing, he poured into Antonio's ear a cumulative roar that threw the camp and the denizens of the wilderness far and near into confusion, and almost drove the whole marrow in Antonio's body out at his heels. The stricken man sprang up as if earth had shot him forth, uttered a yell of terror such as seldom greets the ear, and rushed blindly forward. Repeating the roar, Disco plunged after him. Antonio tumbled over the fire, recovered himself, dashed on, and would certainly have plunged into the river if not into the jaws of a crocodile had not Jumbo caught him in his arms in the midst of a chorus of laughter from the other men. "'How dare he go to sleep on duty!' demanded Disco, seizing the culprit by the collar eh? We might have been all murdered by rebels or eaten by lions or had our eyes picked out by gorillas for all that you would have done to prevent it, eh?' giving him a shake. "'Oh, pardon, forgive, never do it more again,' exclaimed the breathless and trembling Antonio. "'You'd better not,' said Disco, giving him another shake and releasing him. Having done so he turned on his heel and bestowed a quiet look in passing on Jumbo which of course threw that unfortunate man into convulsions after this little incident a hasty breakfast was taken the canoes were launched and the voyage was continued it is not necessary to trace the course of our explorers day by day as they ascended the zambesi or to recount all the adventures or misadventures that befell them on their journey into the interior it is sufficient for the continuity of our tale to say that many days after leaving the coast They turned into the Shire River, which flows into the Zambezi, about 150 miles from the coast. There are many fountainheads of slavery in Africa. The region of the interior which gives birth to the headwaters of the Shire River is one of the chief of these. Here lies the great lake Nyasa, which was discovered and partly explored by dr livingstone and hence flows a perennial stream of traffic to kilwa on the coast which traffic at the present time consists almost exclusively of the two kinds of ivory white and black the former elephants tusks being carried by the latter slaves by which means the slave trade is rendered more profitable towards this populous and fertile region then our adventures directed their course when they turned out of the great river and began to ascend the shire, and here at the very outset of this part of the journey they met with a Portuguese settler who did more to open their eyes to the blighting and withering influence of slavery on the land and on its people than anything they had yet seen. Towards the afternoon of the first day on the shire they landed near the encampment of the settler referred to, who turned out to be a gentleman of a Portuguese town on the Zambezi. Harold found to his delight that he could speak English fluently, and was moreover an exceedingly agreeable and well-informed man. He was out at the time on a hunting expedition, attended by a party of slaves. Harold spent the evening in a very pleasant intercourse with Signor Gamba, and at a later hour than usual returned to his camp where he entertained Disco with an account of his new acquaintance. While thus engaged he was startled by the most appalling shrieks which proceeded from the neighboring encampment. Under the impression that something was wrong, both he and Disco leaped up and ran towards it. There, to his amazement and horror, Harold beheld his agreeable friend, Signor Gamba, thrashing a young slave unmercifully with a whip of the most formidable character. Only a few lashes from it had been given when Harold ran up, but these were so powerful that the unhappy victim dropped down in a state of insensibility just as he reached the spot. The Portuguese gentleman turned away from the prostrate slave with a scowl, but betrayed a slight touch of confusion on meeting the gaze of Harold Seadrift. "'Señor!' exclaimed the latter sternly, with mingled remonstrance and rebuke in his tone. "'How can you be so cruel? What has the boy done to merit such inhuman chastisement?' "'He has neglected my orders,' answered the Portuguese, as though he resented the tone in which Harold spoke but surely surely said harold the punishment is far beyond the offence i can scarcely believe the evidence of my own eyes and ears when they tell me that you have been guilty of this come returned signor gamba softening into a smile you english cannot understand our case in this land because you do not keep slaves you take the philanthropic the religious view of the question we who do keep slaves have a totally different experience you cannot understand you cannot sympathize with us.' "'No, truly we cannot understand you,' said Harold earnestly, and God forbid that we should ever sympathize with you in this matter. We detest the gross injustice of slavery, and we abhor the fearful cruelties connected with it.' "'That is because, as I have said, you are not in our position,' rejoined the Signor with a shrug of his shoulders. "'It is easy for you to take the philanthropic view which, however, I admit to be the best,' for in the eyes of God all men are equal, and though the African be a degraded man, I know enough of him to be sure that he can be raised by kindness and religion into a position not very inferior to our own. But we who keep slaves cannot help ourselves. We must act as we do.' "'Why so? Is cruelty a necessity?' asked Harold. "'Yes, it is,' replied the signor decidedly. "'Then the abolition of slavery is a necessity too.' growled Disco, who had hitherto looked on and listened, in silent wonder, debating with himself as to the propriety of giving Senor Gamba, then and there, a sound thrashing with his own whip. "'You see,' continued the Portuguese, paying no attention to Disco's growl, "'you see, in order to live out here I must have slaves, and in order to keep slaves I must have a whip. My whip is no worse than any other whip that I know of. I don't justify it as right.' I simply defend it as necessary. Wherever slavery exists, discipline must of necessity be brutal. If you keep slaves and mean that they shall give you the labor of their bodies and of their minds also, in so far as you permit them to have minds, you must degrade them by the whip and by all other means at your disposal until, like dogs, they become the unhesitating servants of your will, no matter what that may be, and live for your pleasure only it will never pay me to adopt your philanthropic, your religious views. I am here. I must be here. What am I to do? Starve? No, not if I can help it. I do as others do. Keep slaves and act as the master of slaves. I must use the whip.' "'Perhaps you won't believe me,' continued Signor Gamba, with a sad smile. "'But I speak truth when I say that I was tender-hearted when I first came to this country.' for I had been well nurtured in Lisbon, but that soon passed away. It could not last. I was the laughing stock of my companions. Just to explain my position I will tell you a circumstance which happened soon after I came here. The governor invited me to a party of pleasure. The party consisted of himself, his daughters, some officers, and others. We were to go in boats to a favorite island resort several miles off. I took one of my slaves with me, a lad that I kept about my person. As we were going along this lad fell into the river. He could not swim and the tide was carrying him fast away to death. Dressed as I was in full uniform I plunged in after him and saved him. The wish alone to save the boy's life prompted me to risk my own, and for this I became the jest of the party. Even the ladies twittered at my folly next evening the governor had a large dinner party. I was there. Having caught cold I coughed slightly. This drew attention to me. Remarks were made, and the governor alluded in scoffing terms to my exploit, which created much mirth. Were you drunk? said one. Had you lost your senses to risk your life for a brute of a negro? said another. Rather than spoil my uniform, I would have knocked him on the head with a pole, said a third, and it was a long time before what they termed my folly was forgotten or forgiven. You think I am worse than others. I am not, but I do not condescend to their hypocrisy. What I am now I have been made by this country and its associates. Note these words are not fictitious. The remarks of Senor Gamba were actually spoken by a Portuguese slave-owner and will be found in the story of the university's mission to Central Africa. Pages sixty-four, sixty-five, and 66. End of note. Signor Gamba said this with the air of one who thinks that he has nearly, if not quite, justified himself. I am no worse than others is an excuse for evil conduct, not altogether unknown in more highly favoured lands, and is often followed by the illogical conclusion, therefore, i am not to blame but although harold felt pity for his agreeable chance acquaintance he could not admit that this explanation excused him nor could he get over the shock which his feelings had sustained it was therefore with comparatively little regret that he bade him adieu on the following morning and pursued his onward way everywhere along the shire they met with a more or less hospitable reception from the natives who regarded them with great favour in consequence of their belonging to the same nation which had sent forth men to explore their country, defend them from the slave-dealer, and teach them about the true God, these men of whom mention is made in another chapter, had some time before this been sent by the Church of England to the Manganja Highlands at the suggestion of Dr. Livingstone and laid, we believe, the foundation stone of Christian civilization in the interior of Africa, though God saw fit to arrest them in the raising of the superstructure. Among other pieces of useful knowledge conveyed by them to the Negroes of the Shire was the fact that Englishmen are not cannibals, and that they have no special longings after black man's stakes. It may perchance surprise some readers to learn that black men ever entertained such a preposterous notion nevertheless it is literally true the slavers arabs and portuguese find it in their interest to instill this falsehood into the minds of the ignorant tribes of the interior from whom the slaves are gathered in order that their captives may entertain a salutary horror of englishmen so that if their dhows should be chased by our cruisers while creeping northward along the coast and run the risk of being taken the slaves may willingly aid their captors in trying to escape. That the lesson has been well learnt and thoroughly believed is proved by the fact that when a dhow is obliged to run ashore to avoid capture the slaves invariably take to the woods on the wings of terror, preferring no doubt to be reenslaved rather than to be roasted and eaten by white fiends. Indeed so thoroughly has this been ingrained into the native mind, that mothers frequently endeavor to overawe their refractory offspring by threatening to hand them over to the dreadful white monster who will eat them up if they don't behave. End of chapter seven. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks. Com.